Hey, it's Pastor Mike. I'll keep this short because I know you want to listen to today's message. You're here because you want to continue growing in your faith, and we at Time of Grace want the exact same thing for you. Just visit us at timeofgrace.org, and you'll find a ton of resources at your fingertips, like sermons, videos, books, devotions, our blog, and of course, more podcasts. See you there. Well, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Series here at Time of Grace. That's uh, me. If you're just listening, can't see the video, uh, Pastor Mike from Time of Grace. And I'm here with the one, the only, Amber L.B. Swenson. Amber, it's been a long time since I've seen you. How you been? I know. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Uh, I'm catching up. This has been like the wildest summer out of all the summers that I've ever summered. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm getting... You had, a, you had a lot going on there. I can't wait to hear about it. Tell me about Argentina and then you went camping. I did. I did. Yeah. So like end of the school year, mid-May, I took a month-long Spanish immersion trip to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, then I got back on a Tuesday night, like for dinner and Thursday morning at 5 a.m. I took a two-week camping vacation with my family. We've never camped, but we did seven national parks. And then I got back and like just the timing worked out. There's a big Christian music festival. So we camped again for three days. And then I went home on Saturday night before Toby Mac. And then Sunday we had an Airbnb with friends because it was the only date that would work. So I've been in a sleeping bag in the woods in another. Is Argentina in a different hemisphere? I was trying to think for a second. Southern. Southern. Yes, <laughs> so, it is. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember how to speak English and how to <laughs> sleep in my bed and remember what life is like here in Wisconsin. So it's been wild, but it's been really cool. So you're smiling when you're talking about camping. So it must have gone fairly well. It was so epic. Um, 92% of our family and friends said that we were going to turn around after the first night. So maybe it was just the competition in me. See, there you go. <laughs> they totally set you up to conquer it. I would yeah, be the did. same. I'd be like, there's no way I'm turning around. <laughs> yeah. My youngest daughter, Maya, who tends to see what could go wrong. Um, she had a list of like 17 ways we were going to die. Oh, wow. So... <laughs> and none of them worked out. So that's no. perfect. Good job, Maya. <laughs> <laughs> None of them did. So, wow, man, I'm not sure. Have you done the national parks at all, like Yellowstone or Glacier, mm -hmm. Badlands? Have not been to Glacier, but the others I have. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It just blew our minds. So talk mm -hmm. about worship time. Like No kidding. Seeing the stars from the Badlands and seeing the mountains at the Grand Tetons and hiking these glacial lakes. It was epic. So we are officially converted. You people <laughs> who knew about camping before. Like, wow, you should have shared this good news with me because I thought it was just bugs and heat and uncomfortable sleep, but it was pretty wonderful. I think, tell me the age of your kids again. They're older. 15 and 13. I, I think that's why you had a good experience. Hmm. I went camping with my children probably when my youngest was four, four to like 12. Miserable experience. Like, <laughs> I think I went to the bathroom like eight times that night. Every time I got back in the tent, someone else was like, mom. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I'm like, and all I can hear is Steve. <laughs> so I'm like, went to the bathroom. Steve got up and I was like, take me home and sell the tent. Cause I don't, I don't ever want to do this. And we had camped tons before we had kids, but then we oh. waited after, you know, cause it was like baby, 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 baby. And then we waited and that was like a terrible experience. So your kids were probably the perfect age. Wow. They really were. Hey, speaking of Steve, we're talking about marriage this month. Yeah. That was a nice, your snoring husband while well, you did all the work. So <laughs> Steve, if you're listening right now, put a, put a comment in the chat section and let us know how you felt about Amber. Steve on is camp. definitely, Steve is definitely listening right now. I can guarantee you. He loves, he loves you, Pastor Mike. So oh, that's kind. Yeah. So the series we're breaking down here in our chat is called God's Blueprint for a Happy Home. Uh, this is really, man, it was an impactful series for our church, uh, for me. Um, so I'd love to break that down. We talked about what makes marriages work. We mm -hmm. dove into living together before marriage, good or bad yeah. idea. What does God think? Uh, we spent two whole weeks on infidelity. So it, it happens. It happens to Christian people and couples. How do you avoid it? How do you deal with it? How do you help someone through it? So we crammed all of that into a four-week series, and I'm excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, so start us off with the big idea. Where did this come from? Where did the idea come from, and what made you decide to focus on this? Oh, you know, obviously not every Christian is married or will be married. Um, it's important to say, right? Um, the Apostle Paul was pretty good at following Jesus, and he was single. And Jesus was pretty good at making his father happy. 
And I don't think he ever went on a date that we know of, right? So lots of great Christian people aren't going to be married, but statistically lots will. And kind of the heart that launched this series was marriage seems to be this really high risk, really high reward choice that most Christians make. It, it can end up as, you know, looking back on life, one of the greatest things that ever happened to you. And for other people, it will be one of the most agonizing, heartbreaking. I can't believe I went through that. I needed counseling and therapy just to process that. Right. Like there, there aren't a whole lot of things in life that quite come with that much importance. And, you know, in a world and in a church where there's no guarantees and even people who go to church all the time don't have really close, intimate marriages, we wanted to do everything we could to grab the Bible and help people through it. You mentioned in one of the sermons that you were pretty scared to get married, even though you had good family examples, but you, you said, I was still pretty scared when you just said high risk. I don't think, I mean, I was 22 when I got married. I didn't look at it at high, high risk at all. Like I mm. dove in head first, heart first. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if that's changed. I mean, I meet a lot of younger couples, maybe because, you know, divorce has become more common mm -hmm. that I sense from younger generations, a real keen awareness, like this could go bad. I grew up in a broken home. I heard mom and dad fighting and arguing, and they're scared that they're going to end up in that same spot. Yeah. So yeah, I suppose it depends on what kind of examples you had in your home. But as a pastor, I see that's true. I mean, some of the most heartwarming moments I have is with happy families. And mm -hmm. you know, the bulk of the counseling I do is with marriages that aren't making it. Yeah. My daughter said to me, Last week, I don't have one friend who still has both parents together. Wow. And we went through them and I, I realized she's absolutely right. Within the last year, the last of them have divorced. Yeah. Wow. So that's crazy. Yeah. It that is. my daughter who is a Christian and went to a Christian day school and has grown up in the church of her close friends, not one of them has a two parent home. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard relationship, but man, when it works out, when God blesses it, when you do it right. Um, I was at that Airbnb with my friends that I mentioned, you know, just four couples and our kids, you know, and I'm just kind of watching my friends. They're, they're raising kids that love Jesus. You see their affection for each other. One of my friends has gone through some health issues and her husband's right by her side to help her. Um, you know, I just see these beautiful examples of generational faith. And I think, mm -hmm. wow, like that, that is what God can do when this works according to his design. So high risk, high reward, no guarantees. So that's why I love that we're talking about this. Let's help, help people who are listening to end up more like the one we want instead of the one we're trying to avoid. Yeah. So sermon one, you really low, lay the foundation. Mm -hmm. So it is what makes marriage work. So God doesn't leave us without guidance. He tells men what to do. He tells women what to do. So what can men do to help their marriage work? Ooh, my answer to that question, did you know this, Amber, was the first piece of truly viral content that I've ever produced. Oh, I didn't know that. No, no I've, you know, obviously I get to put a lot of stuff on the internet. And yeah. Sometimes it's just my mom that watches it. And then sometimes, <laughs> you know, more people watch it, but this this clip of what I said to men in this sermon oh. blew up on the internet like nothing else I've ever done in 16 years of being a pastor. So all the women were sharing it is it what you're was. saying. That is exactly what happened. It got like 50,000 shares on Instagram. It was this one minute clip and here's what I said. And apparently the women agreed with me. Um, I said, men, if, if you wanna have a great marriage, act without being asked. Like what your wife wants is for you to do something. And that's going to be different for every couple, every wife. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, something you'll be a good husband. If you do it without her needing to tell you because you paid attention to her heart, her stress, her desires, and you know, you anticipate what she wants and you do it, you will be like husband of the year. If she doesn't kiss you good within five minutes, I owe you five bucks. Cause like, I, this is what I think this is what my wife wants. I mean, yeah. Um, she, she is so happy when she asks me to do something that's stressing her out and I do it. But when I see that stress, when I anticipate her schedule and I just, I get at it first and she wakes up and the thing is done, 
like, man, she is so grateful for our marriage. Do you know, I noticed something when you were explaining this part to men, you're like, it should be God and then your wife and then, you know, hobbies, da, 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 da. But then in sermon five, because sermon three was broke up into two pieces, you kind of went back on that. Did you know that? I, I did not. What did I say? Yeah. Yeah. You said, Maya made banana bread and there's God and then there's <laughs> banana bread and then there's everything else. And for someone who was taking notes as I was going through this, because I wanted to ask questions, I'm like, wait, 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 sermon one. God wife. So sermon one, it was God Kim. Sermon five, it was God banana bread. And I'm not in sure my, if Kim falls into that. In my defense, you need to try this banana bread. <laughs> I don't think I can because it sounded like it had chocolate chips and a whole bunch of sugar in it. So probably not, but I'll trust you. I'll okay. take your word on it. Thanks for listening carefully. I, I accept that rebuke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what should women do? What is, what is the women? What is the guidance for women? The tone of your voice when you asked me that, and the look in your eye, like, "Oh, Pastor Mike, this is bring it you, on." You crash and burn. Um, I I will answer that question. I'm nervous too, but I, I want to put that in your court first. You are not nervous too. I I am a little bit. You did a sermon on it. You, okay. I, I know, and I know the reaction that I got. So I'm gonna... oh, because you could see the audience reaction. That's hilarious. Because I have I have told you right here. My friends and I do not talk about sex, Pastor Mike. We're not. <laughs> so I listened to the first sermon and I'm like, I I walked with friends, got on Zoom with friends. I'm like, what do you think of this? Like, talk to me real talk. I have never talked about sex so much in my entire marriage. And I learned so much. Now I'm wondering why I didn't. Like, wow. I should have been asking people about sex all this time. Wow. I know. Now I have to do a podcast series because now I've got like way too much information. Yeah. So obviously Ember's giving away my answer and I, I want to put a bunch of asterisks on this yeah. because I, I know that um, the sexual part of a marriage is complicated. Um, you know, how many people have been through trauma that involves sex that makes it very difficult. Um, not every couple has like the husband who wants more sex than the wife, maybe 80% of the time that's true, but not always. Um, and sometimes there are complicated situations where, you know, pursuing sex in the moment should probably wait until we work another couple things out, right? So I don't wanna impose some generality on individual situations. But I, I would say, you know, as I'm kind of listening to feedback of couples who are struggling, it's really interesting how quickly that comes up from husbands in struggling marriages and not from wives, in my experience. Of like, she's frustrated because of A, B, or C. <laughs> and most of the time for him, he's, Frustrated because, well, we haven't been intimate in like a month, yeah, three months. Do you get that? That makes total sense to me. Like I, if I'm upset with Steve, the last thing I can do is be intimate with him. Like yeah. I have to work that out first yep. in my head. Correct. That makes total sense to me. And what what seems to not make so much sense to the guys, because I've, I've heard this too, is like, if you're harsh with me, I can't have sex with you. I, I mean, I just, I can't. You were just harsh with me. Hmm. I can't give that part to me. So if I don't want to have sex with you, instead of like storming off or whatever, hmm. say, have I done something or hmm. something bothering you about our relationship? Because nine times out of 10, it, it, yeah, it's right at the top, you know, top of, yes, as a matter of fact, hmm. you know, or so to me, that makes perfect, perfect sense that it's kind of a temperature is the canary. You know, yep, yep. the canary in the mind. Like if I, if I'm not having sex with you, there's probably a good reason yep, yep. I'm not having sex with you. Cause as a woman that, I mean, clearly that's the most intimate thing I can do for sure. Yeah. And I can't have sex with you when there's all this other on my heart. I just can't. Yep. Yep. I get it. And I think that's the tension of it. Um, you know, depending on the person, depending on the couple, she might want to do A before she can do B. And for a lot of guys, unless we do B, I'm too frustrated to tackle right. A. And so you get kind of in this, like, who's, right? you know, who, who has the priority here? And a lot of couples get stuck with that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, the solution, who would have thought, is selflessness, it's humility, it's forgiveness, it's grace. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I would just add, you know, one thing, as long as we're talking about sexual dynamics, I think the same advice that I gave to men is so true for women. Like my wife's love language is acts of service. So when I act without being asked, that means the world to her. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of husbands, if they have the higher sexual desire, you know, if they ask for sex or they're interested or they initiate with their wife and she responds, like that's a beautiful moment. But if she's the lower desire and she initiates and she acts without being asked, like that's, that's like, that's it for a lot of dudes. Right. And so th- that simple thing, and it makes so much sense, right? Because it proves, well, you care about me. This might not be your first choice, but you value our relationship. It just makes a person feel cared for and safe and desired. So whatever the love language, whether it's sex or not, just that piece of advice is sticking with me. Act without being asked. Yeah. And in my conversations with friends, too, I mean, it was brought out notably multiple times. We can save the world by having sex with our grouchy husbands. Like we take it upon ourselves. Like I'm talking about when there's like serious hurts that you can't, you know, but when he's just grumpy or whatever, and you just go like, this guy cannot go to work like this. He's going to ruin everybody's night. Like this is totally on me. I'm doing this for everybody at work. I'm doing this for everybody at the quick trip where he gets his coffee. And like women know we, we have a superpower and it sometimes has to be unleashed for the sake of our marriage and everybody else out there who our husband may come in contact for the rest of the day. Oh, I cannot wait to tell Kim about this moment of the conversation. Thank you for that. Oh, she knows. She She knows. knows. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Sermon number two, living together before marriage. Um, This is kind of complex. You approach this from two different angles. So the first angle you come at is, does living together make you happier? And the resounding answer is from secular sources, at least. Yes. Like when they do surveys, do you think you should live together before marriage? I, I can't remember if it was six out of 10 or I can't remember the stats right now, but the great majority of people are like, yes, 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 Mm -hmm. yes. We want to live together before marriage. Yeah. So talk about that, where we are from a a society standpoint, because this is where our kids are growing up right now. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think everyone knows times have changed. You know, it used to be kind of frowned upon socially. It would still Mm -hmm. happen. And then it moved from like, well, the young couples are living together to they're living together and the parents aren't bothered by it anymore to they're telling the pastor and they're not blushing anymore. It, you know, just kind of become the new normal. And yeah, if you ask people why they would say, well, we love each other. We want to be together. We want to make sure this works before we take the sacred promise of marriage. Our parents got divorced. We want to really make sure so we don't end up on that path or we're trying to save money or, you know. A bunch of different reasons. Here's the fascinating part. Before we even get to a Bible and think about the morality of it, we have a ton of research because this has been going on for a bit about whether couples who live together before marriage actually end up happier or not. Mm -hmm. And the resounding consistent answer is they do not. Like everything that matters to a couple, they have a better chance of reaching it if they don't live together before marriage. I said this in the sermon, but I I copied and pasted this so I could read it on this podcast. So here's what I said in the sermon. According to the latest research, couples who marry without living together, trust each other more, serve each other more, are satisfied with household chores more, and satisfied with sex more. Those who marry without living together first are more likely to be faithful, more likely to stay together, more likely to raise healthy children. A study from UCLA said that people who live together before marriage experience significantly more difficulty with adultery, alcohol, and drugs. A professor from Western uh, Western Washington said that living together is, quote, one of the most robust predictors of divorce. Another survey found that living together before marriage increases your likelihood of divorcing by 50 to 80%. One author commented, why do you think insurance companies care if you're married? The answer, because marriage is associated with stability unquote. So, you know, we haven't talked about right or wrong. We haven't talked about sin or holiness, but if trust and fidelity and health and healthy children, like if that matters to you, 
<laughs> then science is real. Like listen to what's actually happening to the thousands upon thousands upon millions of people who've tried it um, because there is a better path that leads to a better place. Which is so sad because these people who are living together come from a lot of times these broken homes and they're doing this because they want a better chance of staying together. Hmm. And yet they're almost sabotaging themselves in the meantime. Yeah, maybe I'd quibble with the first part of that sentence. It's it's not just a, a broken home or a, my parents were divorced thing. It, it just seems logical. Like I heard someone say I would never buy a car without test driving it. Oh, goodness. That has been going on since I was dating. I remember a woman I was working with at the time and she she was asking me if Steve and I were having sex and I'm like, we're going to wait. And she's like, you can't drive. You know, you can't buy a car without driving it. I'm like. I mean, what I, are we talking yeah. about cars? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I'm compassionate to the arguments because it, in one way it makes sense. They actually say divorce rates in the first year go down if you've lived together before marriage. So you do get a taste of, you know, what is it like to share space with this person, to share chores with this person. So I, I don't find it completely illogical. I, I understand why people do it. I understand the finances. I understand the fear that people are facing. But that's why I was hoping this sermon would just open their eyes to like, wow, if you zoom out, like a God who wants what's best for you is trying to protect you, trying to keep you safe. He's trying to bless your future. So yeah, I, I think a lot of couples need that. It's not intuitive to them. So we need to redirect them with the wisdom that we've discovered. So the second part of this sermon is, does it, are we holier if we're living together before marriage? And you mm -hmm. pointed out what God's word says about this. And I was a little confused at first because I guess I just assumed living together and having sex were synonymous, but mm -hmm. you were saying, you were kind of saying living together maybe doesn't necessarily mean that you're breaking God's law, but I mean... I guess I just assumed that was one and the same. But hmm. um, anyway, you mentioned how complex this is, and you just started to get into that. Hmm. So what do you say to the couples who are living together who really do love the Lord, but hmm. they haven't made the commitment with their relationship? Sure. Yeah, so the holy part of this, I was thinking, you know, happy and holy. Um, you know, God cares a ton about sexual purity. I, th I think I'd want to say that up front. That's not a joke to him. It's not like an optional commandment. <clears throat> Sex is a great gift. You know, we were laughing about it, talking about it before. Um, it's nothing to be ashamed of, but it is reserved for those who've made the covenant. And so I think every couple who's living together would have to ask themselves, are we, are we being honest about that? Are we living pure and holy lives that we could tell our children and grandchildren and parents and grandparents about? Or has this situation we put ourselves in made us more likely to sin and less likely to be holy? I'm just going to start there bluntly because I know, I mean, my goodness, I was, Kim and I were virgins when we got married um, and we didn't live together before we got married, but wow, that was a, that was a battle. Like <laughs> spending one night in a hotel if we were away somewhere or, you know, like those are huge moments of temptation. So I can't. I can't even imagine if it was just us two in a house for a month or six months or a year and there's one bedroom and one shower like i just want to say come on i like i hope you're physically attracted to each other that's a good thing but you must have about 17 times more self-control than i do if you can be holy in that situation I, I don't think most couples can and that's why i think living together is often a, a very foolish idea that gets people into spiritual trouble I uh, listened to a podcast by Dr. Julie Slatterly recently. Mm -hmm. She really talks about sex issues a lot. And as I was talking to my friends and different things that were coming up, I just wanted to go back because she, she's just a really good resource for that. And she said something that I thought was very pertinent. She said, every one of us has sinned sexually. Mm -hmm. Like, in terms of, I mean, you mentioned it in your sermon and just now again, too, just like whether you were a virgin on your on your wedding night or not, you had sinned sexually. I mean, I, we all sinned 
sexually. And Julie said that too. She's like, I don't care who you are. So we're all in the same boat on this. Like mm -hmm. living together, not living together. We're all before God in the exact same boat, before, you know, on this issue. Yeah. And I thought that was really good because we don't want to have hierarchies. You know, we lived together or we didn't live together or we were virgins or we weren't like we've all sinned. Let's yeah. just all we're all on the same yeah. plane there. And, and let's just make the decisions that honor God mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. are working towards that happy, healthy, holy home. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, that's, that's the good. plan for the church mm -hmm. is to I get us that. there, not to point fingers because we can't point fingers. None of us can. Yeah. But just to say, let's, let's work on this. Yeah, I, I would. I, I like that. Thank you. Because yeah, certainly you don't have to share an address, a mailing address to cross lines, you know, no. and commit sinful choices. But I would say this, um, taking, taking shots at a bar is not sinful, but it's often associated with something that is. So if I saw you taking tequila shots, um, some flags would go up for me because man, it's really hard to do that without getting to a line that you're going to cross with God. And when I see a couple living together, I, I can't assume they're breaking God's law, but it's off, so often connected with that. I'm as a brother in Christ, as a pastor, that is a concern for me. Yeah. Um, because I, I know that God loves his children. He, he loves the benefits of sexual purity. Um, and so I, I challenge couples a lot. Like when you look back five years from now, if you prioritize God in your relationship, even if it costs you, you know, a rent for three or six months to be able to say to your kids, this, this was a huge test for our faith. It wasn't convenient. Um, you know, we got married in a private ceremony cause we were just ready to be married and had to wait for the big party. Like you will look back and say, wow, uh, I'm so glad I did the hard thing to honor God with my relationship. Mm-hmm. So, man, I, I put that on the table all the time. Um, honor God with your body. Do the difficult thing now, and you'll look back and be so grateful that you did. Mm, good advice. Oh, sermon three. This was tough. This was really, really hard. It's called What If There Was an Affair? And it's broken down into two sermons. And give us the stats on men and women in affairs. I was absolutely blown. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, too many is the short answer. Um, from what I gathered, one in five husbands and one in eight wives would be unfaithful in their relationship. And is that, is there any differentiation between people in the church and out of the church? Is that just a blanket statement or? Yeah. A great question. Yeah. There's some debate on that. You know, some people will say there's no difference. But when you dig into the data and it's not, well, I'm a Christian self-identifying, but people who are, you know, connected to the church, connected to the Bible, not just a nominal, well, sure, I, I'm, I'm not atheist, I'm Christian. I, I believe, I, I should check that before I say it publicly, but I'm 92% sure that having roots and connections does help. But man, I, really, Amber, I put this sermon in because some of the most connected couples at my church had been through this. I know you said that and, and it wasn't just one. I mean, that, I think that's where I, and you started the sermon that way and between the stats and that I, I just, I, uh, yeah, it's something good to talk about. And I, I feel like this has a lot of potential to save some marriages. So I'm glad you put it in. Yeah, me too. You give us five admonishments. Two are ways to help you avoid affairs. So don't, and don't even come close. I, I mean, it was so needed, so necessary. This is again in, in the realm of like the abuse and the abortion. I, I don't know that I've heard these words from a sermon. You know, we say these things, but we need to hear them regularly. So without becoming legalistic, because if God doesn't say thou shalt not, Mm -hmm. that we can't necessarily say you must, yep. but what are some good boundaries that all of us should have in place? Yeah. Yeah. So I, forgive me. I, I can't remember if I heard this somewhere, if I came up with it, but I thought of five steps that get a person into an affair or get them to be unfaithful. And my five steps were deprivation and then attraction and then intention 
emotion, and connection. So what that meant was deprivation. I'm, I'm feeling deprived at home. Um, I want to be connected. I want to communicate with my spouse. I want to be more intimate, but that's not happening. And I'm frustrated with that deprivation. Then attraction. I, I noticed someone at work or, you know, another woman on my kid's sports team or someone on the parent teacher association. There's just something about them. And that's not crazy, right? There's 8 billion humans. You're probably going to find someone else charming mm -hmm. or attractive. And normally that's not an issue, but when you're feeling kind of hollow and, and empty inside, yep. um, Three is intention. It's where I intentionally do something different because of the attraction. So, oh, mm -hmm. she, you know, she's going to be at the kids' event. Well, now I'm putting on cologne and I'm changing my clothes. Or, oh, I could, you know, stop by his office and just chat about the project. I, I wasn't planning on it, but it's him, so I kind of like a little more time. Mm -hmm. That's intention. Emotion is where you cross that line of not just being by them, but you share something personal and emotional. Uh, very likely your own struggles in your marriage. You know, you're connecting at that kind of intimate, vulnerable level. And then finally, connection is where you cross that physical line as a physical connection. It might just be a hand on the shoulder because I'm trying to comfort you. You know, it might be the kiss that just happens. And I think that's how you, I, I think it's pretty rare that someone has a really fulfilled marriage at home and then just out of the blue cheats. Super rare. But I do think these steps one after another are super common. Um, and so your question was boundaries, right? Right. Um, I, there's a lot we could say about like, you know, where, what's why, should you drink when you're on the opposite sex? You know, some people have rules where unless I'm with my wife, I'm not gonna have alcohol or I'm not gonna be alone in a car or, you know, at a bar, whatever with a woman. But I thought this, I think the best boundary to protect you from infidelity is a boundary with your schedule. Hmm. Here's why I say that. If infidelity often starts with deprivation, and if deprivation is essentially me not having the time or energy to act without being asked, if I have a schedule that's so full, like I wake up, I'm working out, I'm going to work, I'm coming home late, I'm texting with friends, I'm watching Netflix, I'm playing soccer, that I get to the end of my day and there was literally no time or energy for me to think about serving Kim. It is my schedule that has led me towards a sexual sin. If Kim doesn't have time to think about romance with me because the kids are going to piano lessons and drum lessons and volleyball and sports camp and Christian stuff and volunteering here and Bible study and women's group, and her schedule has suffocated her so that she can't keep her vow to show me love and respect. Um, I think even more than thinking about alcohol or should you be in a car with a member of the opposite sex? I think especially in America where we are so busy and so overbooked, where we assume that our marriage is going to be fine, even if I invest mm -hmm. most of my time and energy somewhere else. I think one of the best boundaries we can intentionally think about is my schedule. Is my schedule marriage friendly? Am I able to keep my vow with the schedule that I've chosen for myself? And if, if you can't, like that's time to sit down and say, okay, what matters most? God, yeah. not banana bread, right? <laughs> God, and then my spouse, I'm going to look back. I'm not going to care yeah. about, could I bench 150 pounds? Could I score a goal? Did my fantasy football team win? Did my kid get to play varsity or not? I'm going to care whether I had a healthy marriage or I ended up in divorce court. So guard your schedule and it just might guard your marriage. I think healthy marriages, like health in general, doesn't just happen. I mean, you might fall into deprivation because of having a super busy season that becomes a longer season and then you don't make a point. But I don't know. Am I wrong? I don't think healthy marriages happen by accident. I think that is the grass mm. is always greener where they are fed and watered. Mm. Like yeah. you putting time into that marriage, um, it's going to make that happy marriage, but it doesn't just happen. It has to be part of what you're planning for. And that's what yeah. you're saying with your schedule. Yeah. I've ever told you this was, oh, maybe five, eight years ago, Kim and I did this Bible study where the pastor suggested like an ideal schedule to keep couples connected. No. Mm -mm. Have I told you this? Mm -mm. Yeah, it's just, it's man-made. So this isn't a commandment, but he said, if you can like have a meaningful conversation with your spouse every day, go on a date every week, somehow get out of town every quarter, 
and go on a vacation every year. Alone. Said, you're saying, I, yes. You're <laughs> not, saying. Not, I, was, <laughs> I, for, I forgot to mention, Amber, my 20th anniversary, 20 years of marriage, I was in a tent in South Dakota with two teenage daughters. Yes. <laughs> so, well, Captain I Romance understand over that here, completely. <laughs> my son is getting married in a, about a month here, and uh, he took his fiance to supper to celebrate the night they got in engaged like a week ago. And I'm like, oh, that is so romantic. That is so sweet. You know what we did for our anniversary for years? Because it's right, it's November 30th. So it's right before Christmas. I'm like, we always got Subway and decorated the tree with you guys. That's how we celebrate our anniversary the whole time you were growing up. So that's so sweet that you're just celebrating getting engaged. <laughs> that's cute but it is intentional and it is important and that's yeah. that's good to know whether you can do that or not yeah yeah have you i mean as you kind of look back on years of marriage were there any kind of intentional habits were there scheduling things that you and steve would do to yeah we put our bed our kids to bed early our kids went to bed at eight o'clock every night like oh. the whole time when they were young like and then we had two to three hours every night by ourselves. I felt like we had a date every night. And I was seriously insane about that bedtime. Like 8.05, I was like, get out, all of you. <laughs> this is dad and I, so you all go. And so we we only went on one date a month. We had a Bible study that was an in-home Bible study. And our, our Bible study group were our closest friends. Wow. So one... One night a month, my parents came over and watched the kids, took them to pizza and did all kinds of stuff with them. And we went out. But we always felt like we had so much time together because wow. we put our kids to bed early as mm. long as we possibly could. Wow. And then, you know, once they started getting into the middle school years and it was like, Mom, I want to stay up till 930. It's like, that's fine. You can. But you're in your room with your door closed. So you feel free. That'll be your homework time. That'll be whatever. And then it got different, you know, as all the kids got older. But that was yeah. how we kept our marriage together when we had young kids because we had four. So, mm. wow, that's awesome. I think that's really practical, good advice. It's there are just seasons that are busy, but having some intentional boundaries like that to protect time, super mm -hmm. wise. So I love that. And I think it's I think the important thing is that you find what works for you. You know, because now Steve and I work, one of my friends jokes that we have such a good marriage because Steve works nights and I work days. And they're like, <laughs> that's that's the key to a good marriage right there. And I'm like, I mean, yes and no. I mean, you have to be super intentional, right? Because I'm getting up at four in the morning and he's on his days off. He's going to bed at two. So, I mean, mm. and, and my husband is just so awesome that he'll go to bed on the couch at two until I get up at four so he doesn't wake me up. So... You know, I mean, there's a lot of intentional things that mm. couples do just to show that they care. And yeah. that's that's what matters. Like you said, I never asked Steve to sleep on the couch. I've never once said that, you know, but he knows right. that that extra two hours of sleep is important for me. Yeah. So, wow, man, it's awesome. Yeah. That what makes marriage work. It's just like the effort. I love it. We're kind of getting back to where we started, where um, just prioritizing that relationship. It leads to good places. So. Yeah, for sure. So what about any warning lights that people should notice? I, as you were talking about those five different things, I different times, I, I like, I like you put a lot of boundaries in place. Like with the guys at work, I don't talk about emotional things. I don't, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I but are there any like warning lights that people should recognize when they start getting too close when, you know, it's not, you, you notice the deprivation. Maybe you notice that attractive person. Mm. What what are the warning lights that they should kind of be going? Ooh, I need to back up a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I would I would fit them into those five steps. And maybe I would say I had a, I had a friend who did this. Um, you know, just in a tough season of marriage, and he, he had kind of noticed another woman in his life, and he had the courage and the humility to tell me. Mm -hmm. And I got, he, he would later say, like, just saying that out loud instead of keeping this, you know, little crush a secret was so, the temptation dissipated like, yep. like that of, 
yeah, she's attractive. And yeah, it's not the best chapter of my marriage. To me, that is so wise. Deprivation's Mm -hmm. there, attraction comes. But before I can take those steps, like, like find someone you trust, get it out. They can keep you accountable. They can keep an eye on you in Christian love. Um, Man, it's a little bit embarrassing, but that is... That was such a mature Christian move for him to do. So I'd, I'd encourage people to do that too. Well, rather a little bit of embarrassment telling one person than it coming out that you have. I mean, you want to talk about embarrassment when there's been an affair and the family's falling apart. I mean, yeah. that is amazing that he felt comfortable enough and that's great advice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the last sermon was what if there was an affair? Um, yeah. Well, and it's how do I help my friends caught in adultery? And you had mentioned that when there was a fair, that it will take time, work, and work. So do you want to explain what that means? Yeah. Time, work, and work. Yeah, I would. Um, Before I get there, just real quick, and I want to come back to this later, but you know, there's a lot of people listening who are maybe struggling with marriage, and these are good warnings. And But I have a hunch there's a lot of people listening, maybe who've, it's too late, like it's already mm-hmm. happened. And I just want to say now, and hopefully I remember to say it later, like adultery is not the unforgivable sin. And Jesus met a woman caught in the act of adultery and he, in incredible compassion and forgiveness, did not condemn her. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So maybe if you're listening right now and you're just you know wishing you could take Amber's advice and go back, but you can't, just to know that there's there's grace for you and that God's not done with you and that Jesus took care of that. And he's not thinking about it, even if you still are. So, you know, the advice that we're trying to give to have healthy relationships, let that motivate you for the future. But I also just want to get in a big chunk of gospel hope here for people who maybe feel stuck and, and guilty about the past. Mm, good idea. Yeah. Yeah, your question. So this, uh, you know, how do you heal? Uh, my formula was time times work times work. So time meaning it's going to take time. Adultery is a big deal. It's not like, you know, raising your voice in the heat of an argument, which is over. You you can get past that pretty quickly. But adultery is like a relational car wreck. And it's going to take months, probably a year, at least probably two years on average to rebuild the trust that was broken. So I think that's important to know. Um, If you were if you cheated, your spouse is going to ask you why. Well, why did you do that? Am I not good enough for you? And that question is going to come up about 171 times as they process like how this could have happened. Um, they're not going to trust you. They're not going to feel it. They're not going to want to kiss you, climb into bed with you, be in the same room with you. Like that—that that is a natural part of the process. They're hurting. They're processing. You got to give it time. Second, you got to do the work. So if you cheated. Lots of the work is being patient. It's being transparent. If you cheated with someone at work, it might be you getting a new job. If you cheated with someone at church, it might be finding a new church. Um, If you cheated, all your accounts need to be public. You can't hide. Maybe you have to give up the right to have a phone with you at all times. Like to rebuild that trust, there's going to be a lot of humbling work where you're going to have to serve your spouse to win back their trust. And for the one who is cheated on, this might not seem fair, but it's true. If you don't put in any work, if, you know, if you're just sitting there as the judge waiting for this woman to earn back your trust, like it, that's not going to work. Um, so you're going to have to work at forgiving. You're going to have to work at serving. You can't give yourself a free pass for being bitter or angry or vengeful or saying things just to hurt your spouse like they hurt you. Um, I know someone I was counseling and I was trying to ask her like, Hey, you know, Pastor Ali, how can I help you? Do you just need to hear about God's love when you come talk to me? Like, do you feel unloved because of what your spouse did? And she said, you know what, Pastor, actually what I need is for you to tell me to stop sinning. Cause I, I really want this other woman to pay. And I think things in my head, they're not good and right. And I need someone to call me out on that because I'm going to sabotage my own faith and my recovery because I'm just hurting inside. So yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot of work that both spouses need to do. And with the passing of time, if they both do the work, um, really beautiful things can happen. Um, but that's my formula for, for healing time, time's work, time's work. 
That was really surprising because you had mentioned a man too that you had gone back to afterwards and he had been the one who had had an affair. And you said, what do you need more than anything? And he needed to be reminded like, no, it's up to you to put this effort in. Like you have to go back. You have to keep doing this. And that was good for me to hear. That's good for us to hear that we, we want to be so quick, especially as friends. I think we want to be so quick with that gospel message, but -hmm. sometimes you have to be full of grace and truth Mm -hmm. and be the one to say, look, buddy, there's no easy way out of this. Like you got to keep putting that work in day after day after day. And I can't wait to talk about this last question. What hope do you have for people working through this? Because that was the amazing part Mm. of that sermon. Mm. When you went back and asked those people how their marriage was now, that caught me off guard. So what hope do you have for people who are in the trenches right now? Because there has been an affair. Yeah. What can you give them for hope? Yeah. Um, here's where the banana bread comes in. <laughs> Literally. So my daughter Maya makes this epic, epic banana bread. Like <laughs> when I come home late, like after soccer, I can pound a whole loaf of that with like a quart of butter <laughs> before anyone wakes up. It's It struck me though, the main ingredient in banana bread is not just bananas. It's bad bananas. You know, mushy. You would never peel it and eat it. And yet somehow it I'm not a, a cooking guy. Somehow that becomes the main ingredient for something that's really incredible. And I was interviewing these couples, you know, who had been through infidelity. And you have something that's so bad, so devastating, like an affair or a moment of infidelity. And yet somehow God takes that and kind of, t- you know, it's like a whole relationship gets torn down to the foundation and you got to go to counseling for 50 hours. But in the process, you start talking about all the stuff you you were avoiding for the last six years. Yes. You know, like I always felt kind of lonely because of this, but you never said it until now. You know, as long as it's a wreck, why not say yeah. it? And the truth comes out and you find out what she wants and you find out what he needs. And like with enough work and humility and the Holy Spirit getting at it, like he takes this really bad ingredient and he somehow makes something really beautiful that's stronger and it's better. And I've, I've seen that. I've seen that a bunch this last year at our church. And it just makes me love God so much. He not only forgave that person who cheated, he took something like their own sin and he redeemed it for something that's so good. So that that's the hope. There's no guarantees. Maybe your spouse doesn't want to work on it. But man, if you just humbly both do the work, commit the time, don't give up because you're not feeling it yet. You don't trust each other yet. Just act without being asked as much as you can. Man, um, I would not be shocked if God did it again and he made something beautiful out of that bad start. That's so huge because I think there's the tendency to think if there's been an affair that the marriage is just over. Hmm. And that's the hope that it doesn't have to be that way. Like you said, if you're willing to put the work in, get through, get to the bottom of things, that was a really, really hopeful message. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Man. I hope um, for those of you who are listening, like I, I just cannot uh, overestimate what this did at our church hmm. and the response, like after every single message was noticeable, like, well, okay, I thought this was going to be important. This turned out to be way more important. Yes. So maybe you need this, maybe you don't, but I guarantee someone in your life does. So I'm hoping you watch these messages, you listen, you share them with someone. Maybe they've been through an affair. Maybe it's a brother who's living with his girlfriend. Um, Maybe it's a marriage that feels kind of stuck or someone whose family member cheated. They don't know what to do. Um, All of us kind of need these tools from God. And I hope this series kind of helps give them to people. Me too. Yeah. Awesome, Amber. Thanks for your questions. This is good. Yeah. It's nice to see you again. (laughs) No. Any any closing thoughts on life, relationships, the things you... How about leave us with the, the 73 things you most appreciate about Steve? Go. Okay. Well, he's the kindest man that I've ever met, truthfully. He's way, I do not deserve him. I think that all the time. He's always more considerate of me. And that's just number one. So this would get really boring. So I'll leave it there. But truthfully, I have said, I I say all the time, 
on a scale of one to 10, Steve does, you know, 10, 11, 12, or 13, depending on the day. Once in a while, I'll come to work and I'm like, my 13 is a two today. <laughs> but that is a very, 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 I've been very blessed. But I will also say this. I have in my prayer life, this is one of the things that Julie Slatterly brought out in her podcast that a lot of Christians don't ever pray about their marriage. And she just thinks that's really crazy. And in my prayer life, I have never had like consistently good, um, like a, a solid career. You know, I, I've always done a little of this and a little of this and a little of that. I, that's just how I've been because I've stayed at home more and whatever. But I've always asked God to pay me in a happy marriage and children that follow him. Hmm. So like when I'm praying, I'm like, I don't need a hundred thousand dollars. I don't ever need to be a wealthy person. If, if you bless me, Lord, with a happy marriage and children who follow you, like I will consider myself the richest person on earth hmm. and God has been so faithful. So I would just say to anybody out there, think about how you're praying. Hmm. I mean, truthfully, because if your marriage is not exactly what you want it to be, just start praying that it could be better. And wow start there. Wow. Amen. Amen. Do you know how to say amen in Spanish? I bet it's amen. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Amber, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to time of grace people. So our, uh, our special resource for this month is a book that I wrote based yes. on the series called God's blueprint for a happy, holy home. But after what you just said, which was brilliant. And after the way you described Steve, I wonder if time of grace would just scrap it and you and Steve could just whip up something tonight. What Nobody wants shaking? that. If you're, if you're listening and you're not watching the video, Amber's giving me the daggers and shaking her head. Nobody wants that. Nobody I wants think that. They do want that. When I said, give me 73 things, that was a joke about your husband. And you, instead of laughing, you just started with number one. That tells me something really beautiful about your marriage. So may, maybe not this month. You can read my book if you want this month. Uh, go to timeofgrace.org. But someday, Amber, I'm committing you and Steve. Oh, goodness. To writing an epic. It's called 8 p.m. Bedtime. Another snippet <laughs> of wisdom from. <laughs> it will definitely not be called 8 p.m. Bedtime. There are things I will not talk about. So. <laughs> I love it. All right, Amber. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you love the series. Uh, once again, anything that you can like and share with those you love. Uh, it's not about me or Amber, not about time of grace. It's about helping people and getting them connected to God. So spread this message far and wide and we'll catch you next month on Behind the Series.